You're listening to the Elephant in the Room property podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment. And I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out what he has to say about artificial intelligence and how it reveals our biases. A predictor of uh, downward uh, price pressure was the word balcony in your neighbours. I looked at property price um, descriptions. That was one of the inputs. Uh, Smeg and Miele is awesome. Balcony, really bad. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. This week, we're picking the brains of Luke Metcalf. Luke is a data scientist and entrepreneur who has done a lot of work in real estate and livability. He built a website called Microburbs. It's very interesting. And he used machine learning to generate livability scores for every small pocket across Australia. Now, you can put in any address and it gives you a comprehensive report on pretty much anything that might influence your decision on whether to buy a property, from NAPLAN to public housing to crime to hipness. Now, one thing that impressed me when I first came across Luke a few years ago was that he uses big data and yet recognises that understanding an area at a micro level is key to interpreting the property market. He also uses artificial intelligence to predict house price growth. And of course, we are fascinated to find out more about that. Thank you for joining us, Luke. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure to be here. Thank you for the kind intro. Thank you, Luke. I really appreciate you taking the time, mate. Um, there's a real challenge in Australia. The property market's worth a lot of money and there's a lot of investors, but a lot of what drives that is actually people and it's consumers. One of the things that I love about your website, it's all around livability. Can you just kind of expand on that and why does livability matter so much? Sure. I'm a technical sort of guy. I'm going to try and keep this as accessible as possible. The biggest thing that you're paying for when you buy a property is the land. And the land is worth something because it's close to other things. You might be able to buy a, a suburban-sized block in the Nullarbor Plain, but it's not going to be worth anything. Mm-hmm. I was very interested in this. What is actually the drivers behind the value of land? What's going on? So as you mentioned, there's a, it's a very large market. So there's, there's a very large number of houses, millions of them. Mm. Uh, so that's at a level where you can hand it to a machine and say, find some patterns in this. So, mm-hmm. so uh, AI would not have much of a, an idea if it just met some buyers to work out which one's going to be the top bidder at an auction, mm-hmm. for example. But the actual, the, the, coming to the livability, there, there are a huge number of repeated patterns across Australia and probably across the developed world. So we broke it up into, into eight different criteria, eight different kinds of things that people appreciate about uh, property. And so you can drill down, you get a score for each of them and you can click and see a lot of the drivers for that particular one and what sort of stats, what sort of amenities you get back. So uh, you've got convenience is a really obvious one, how quickly you can get to the kinds of places that people need every day or a couple of times a week, like mm-hmm. shops, work, transit times, that sort of thing. You've got tranquility on the other end of the spectrum. So places that are tranquil tend not to be convenient, but still very valuable. (laughs) So the presence of greenery and uh, Mm -hmm. quiet kinds of people and low density Mm -hmm. uh, was what was put into that one. You've got lifestyle score, which is more about what you do on a Friday or Saturday night or Mm -hmm. going to kids sport or going to the RSL, uh, having a shopping mall nearby where you've got access to a large number of services. Mm -hmm. The lifestyle score, I guess we'll come back to it later, but the lifestyle score out of all the scores was the best predictor of property growth. Mm-hmm. Really? And yeah. so there's a lot of big data, obviously, and I love that word, big data. Everyone's talking about very it Very contentious, the yes. Everyone's talking about it and everyone's talking about AI or artificial intelligence. That's also very contentious at the moment. And obviously I think what you alluded to there was that if you don't have lots and lots of data, then AI is pretty useless. Yeah. Okay, so how do you determine then, is it you or is it the artificial intelligence that determines what data is important 
and how do you interpret it? Yes. So a lot of questions there. Let's see how well I, I <laughs> go break it down. unpacking it. Uh, yes. Yeah, so machines are great when you have the same kind of thing given to them over and over again. So for mm-hmm. example, when you go and get a loan to the bank, uh, they are going to use a machine to work out a credit score. They hit up credit score agencies and uh, these have databases that have looked at all of uh, the defaults in the past and all these different things about you and therefore your likelihood of defaulting. And so computers get very good at that because all that information is written down. They can get it from a database and they can work out statistically likelihoods of things. So you give a computer a large amount of data and it can really uh, work out exactly the likelihood. Whereas humans have availability bias, right? So they they remember what, what they remember at the top of their head massively influences uh, what they actually will do. And mm. we can't store that many things in our head. But what humans have is generalized learning. So we would have seen your wonderful TV show. Uh, we would have been to a whole lot of suburbs. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have an immediate impression when you see a suburb of what kind of people it is. Uh, you have an impression of the kinds of houses, mm-hmm. uh, which means that you can certainly be more articulate in a human sense mm. to talk about it, to relate to other humans. There's effort to go from what the machine learn model is through to articulating that back to humans, which is something that I'm very interested in, do a lot of work on. But yeah, so if you've got a large number of things that are the same over and over again, machines always win. Mm. So if you can encapsulate all of the data around a decision, machines can just take into account far more things. So for this model I built to predict property growth, it looked at 70,000 factors. Mm -hmm. Wow. It found all kinds of uh, interesting things, but uh, that's a digression. Back to your question. How am I going? I think I've answered one. So livability. So how does this map to livability score? So it is a valid question. So this is a subjective thing, right? Livability. It's, uh, you know, you go there, it's got a vibe, you go to the town center. Problem is you can't just go to a suburb that you don't know very well. This was the assumption of the model and immediately know everything. You can't see all the people behind all the doors, right? You don't know the likelihood that a particular crime is going to happen to you. So what you might see at first, the local shopping center, you might say, oh, in my generalized learning brain, I've seen a suburb like this before. This is just like where I used to live in Brisbane. This is the equivalent here in Melbourne or whatever. Mm. Whereas the machine can actually take into account all the businesses that are there, all the businesses that have been in the past. Through the census, it can count the whole population and break it down into 15,000 different ways. Yep. So it's the ability to see beyond if you simply come to the suburb and take an impression. So one example here is buyers agents will tell you that distance to train station is a predictor of growth. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, if you just look at that alone, if you just asked an analyst, uh, what's the relationship between train stations and growth, I would say, yes, it's better to buy near a train station because there is growth. Yep. But I put that into the machine. That was one of 70,000 different predictors. Mm-hmm. The machine did not use that data. Mm. It was not used in the model. And it was a pretty good model. It was better than some humans out there, mm. right? So why would that be? I, I had to look deeply into it. And what I found was it was making use of the census data, specifically people saying that they were taking the train to work. Right. So what that speaks to is that the computer, it doesn't really know. It's not really conceptualizing these people going to work like we do, but all it cares about is getting the best outcome, the most accuracy. So it's fine-tuning for the most accuracy. And my interpretation, going back to using my human elephant brain, is that uh, the buyer's agent who comes into a place they don't know, they see a train, they go tick, that ticks my box. Simple. There's only mm-hmm. a certain number of things that a human brain can process. Yeah. Uh, whereas the machine, if it's got access to actually how many people use the train, it will use it because some not all train stations are created equal, yeah, and that 100%. information might not be available to uh, the buyer's agent. Wow. So, does the machine have bias? The machine learns based on what you train it. Right. So, I have all kinds of machine learning clients. So it's not going to come up. It's not like the Terminator. It's not going to come up with completely new ideas, right? So what it's doing is emulating whatever 
using a, an equation, coming up with a mathematical formula to emulate what, what, whatever outcome you were seeking. So in the case of applying for a loan, you know, the, you're going to have a credit score. What the computer is spitting out is a percentage chance that you are going to default. It's, it doesn't say because of your demographics, I have this bias. It's not like a person that would say, I have met this kind of person before and I've become prejudiced. Mm -hmm. uh, it's looking at the data that's fed and how that influences the likelihood of things mm -hmm. happening. So, for example, women get cheaper insurance on their car, at least in the past, because they tend to drive less aggressively, right? So the computer will come up with that and have that insight, not because it knows about women. Mm. Uh, it will do it because it has found a correlation in the data. I mean, I love this concept around predicting the future and using data to what's happened in the past to what may happen in the future. And the problem with that is that we need, we don't know what's going to happen in the future and mm. you know things can change. And you talked about one of the things there is that you know, livability is one of the strongest drivers of growth. Livability just can change quite dramatically. Council rules change or, and I, I think that's, you know, very quickly a suburb, for example, this is recorded in Redfern. Um, the livability of Redfern has shifted dramatically over the last five, 10 years mm. and the desirability of the suburb. So, you know, what's something livable today might be much more livable in the future. And I guess how do you kind of factor society changes and society preferences and generational shifts and, and things like that that, you know, yeah, so things. it comes down to what you're asking the model to predict, mm. right? So you could ask the model, you could say, predict next year's prices, right? Mm. So it'd be more of a ripple effect, supply, demand sort yep. of thing. But you could also, if you have enough data going back, you can ask it, what will the price be in 10 years' time? It might get it right, it might not. It depends mm. on how good your input data is. Mm. What you will get is a accuracy score looking back. Mm -hmm. So you have the ability to run the model over time for every year in the past, assuming you have the data, mm. and then it can tell you we get it right within 2% margin of error or something, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, it can be harder with a human if they're saying we think these are the top uh, suburbs. Have they published their whole history? So I'm all for like compare human to computer. Sometimes human gets it right, sometimes computer. Mm -hmm. But... To make it a fair fight, what you have to do is have the human have published that over time. So on the property growth side of things, there's a number of things that computers find harder to do, and it comes down to access to data sets. Mm -hmm. So zoning, which way a council is going to go? Is Labor going to get in at the next election and they're going to ban negative gearing? Yeah, is it exactly. One Nation or is it Greens are going to have the balance of power? Is there going to be a collapse in the Chinese economy. <laughs> for each of these, you'd have to come up with a new data set and a new model for the computer. You can't ask the AI to generalize about all of those things to come up with a point of view. So the model that I built only works to the extent that the overall economic conditions continue the same. But then mm -hmm. let's say if the overall economy goes down and everyone's affected the same, then it would probably still work just fine, at least from a relative sense. Mm -hmm. So it's still mm -hmm. able to say these suburbs are better than others. Yeah. But we know it's not as simple as that. We've got ripple effects in both directions. Mm -hmm. So there's more going on with that. Where the most sophisticated models are is in a stock market prediction. Mm -hmm. So there you've got these guys making millions and billions of dollars with algorithms. Most algorithms do most of the trades on the stock mm -hmm. market, but the market changes. Mm. So suddenly there's a different dynamic. And so what it's been trained on, it can no longer work with. Uh, so there's a question, how far back do you go? It's a really big problem in real estate because mm. it's a very slow industry. Yep. Uh, there's a lot of humans involved. Now to the point of like, would it predict gentrification in Redfern? Now that's something that was definitely looking at. So it was looking at housing stock. So mm -hmm. one, of the, one of the findings was that uh, all the housing stock was more likely to gentrify than the 1960s housing stock. Mm -hmm. So it's not that the computer knows Redfern, you know, it can anticipate a, a particular um, norm core movement that springs out of Redfern. Mm. It's more that uh, the computer might say, I've seen similar conditions here 
to what's happening in Redfern now yep. in other places. This happened in Fortitude Valley five years ago or something, right? Mm. Mm. But it would do this in its complicated way where it's taking into account lots of things, right? So it might it, it would be, it'd be far more nuanced. So it could say, uh, it's a bit like Fortitude Valley, but there's something else here that makes it not like that. So we're going to reduce the com the confidence yep. level. Uh, but yes, yeah, so there are still major problems in AI and long-term forecasting. So I think it's hard for humans as well. I've been researching data providers and looking into what information you can get to give you long-term predictions and no one is prepared to mm. say, everyone says our methodology is for short-term only. And given that property investing in particular is a long game and should be a long game, yes. there's very little usage of that because basically if I'm going to buy an area purely because it's going to go up in, say, 12 to 18 months yeah. and I'm going to base all my decisions on that, that means I get an immediate upswing in value and that might mean I get to borrow against it and all those lovely positive mm. things I get with that immediate capital gain, that doesn't necessarily translate into ongoing capital gain or consistent and sustainable capital gain. Sure. And so th therefore a lot of investors and, in fact, owner-occupiers to some degree as well are basing decisions on data and they're not realising it's such short-term data. Yeah, that's right. So that could be a regional centre that their industry is suddenly <laughs> thriving and suddenly there's incredibly mm. um, poor vacancy rates but they're not anticipating that the commodity cycle is going to turn and uh, they're yep. going to be left high and dry. I mean, that's very common. I mean, property research is a lot of it sold on short-term spikes in economic activity and a new shopping mm. centre is going in and it's a great place to invest. Whether that's a great place to invest for 30 years is a different story. And when you're buying property, really the return in real returns come a long time down the future. One thing that computers are really good at also, which is not exactly AI but it can use AI, is also doing large-scale scans. So, so making money when you buy is something that it's a lot easier to, to validate uh, and there is a big difference in the, the price um, that, you know, if you don't have as, nearly as many buyers show up, there can be unnatural highs and unnatural lows in certain areas. Uh, so this, the ability to, to do a scan or do a scan for like particular zoning, like how many um, subdivide lots yep. you can do uh, is a really excellent use of uh, um, AI and just software in general, and that's something that I do do when I consult to your uh, managed property funds, property developers, etc. I agree 100. Like if you're thinking about how a suburb's going to change over the long term, having a scan of what the councils are doing and where they're making changes to the zoning laws and, and things like that is a really good way to picture where the future of the property is going to be built and mm. how does your property sit within that future? Does it still stay on that tree-lined street where nothing changes or are you going to have apartment blocks kind of looking out over your backyard, et cetera? When you're doing long-term forecasting on your model, what are the, some of the key factors that are the most important ones that determine the returns? So my model was about 10 years, so it wasn't super long and it okay. was trying to predict for the next couple of years. Yep. So the long-term model sort of stuff is, is pretty hard. If I was to do a long-term one, I would probably want to look at international data mm -hmm. because you've got markets at different phases, but it would be a big job because there's lots of different kinds of data there. So I would be interested in the evolution of cities. So mm -hmm. is Sydney becoming a Shanghai or is it becoming a London or is it becoming a Miami, mm -hmm. right? So these are things that I would look to I'd probably also look at online demand factors. So for example, I'm consulting to a managed property fund and they have a new kind of development. And I said, look, uh, if you want, we could actually look at what, what the consumers want with this. We could use the Google keyword tool and see where that's going. That's more of a short-term thing. So yeah, long-term is hard. And obviously if you've got strong instincts about where it's going to go, then no computer is going to be able to prove that you're you're wrong on it. The impact of technology, what's going to happen with driverless cars? 100%, I agree. And I mean, your, your word instinct there is actually a really nice word. I think it's probably packaged in a different way to what your actual confirmation bias is and what you want to believe and you seek out information that kind of 
continues the story in your head of what's a good investment or not. Do you see that as in some terms that people are making decisions based on what they believe and then are just seeking out data that supports their argument? Do you see that's a big mistake that people I'm, can look at? Yeah, I'm sure that happens. Yeah, so there's seeking data that supports their argument and then there is... I mean, if people have instincts, so broadly speaking in data science, so I encounter people who are experts in certain areas, I want to see what it is that they're expert at, right? Mm. So I would like to see their predictions and then give that over to the computer to see if they could do better. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the auto automatic valuation space, so you have a large amount of computers that are coming up with property values. When you go to propertyvalue.com.au and these other places, that's on the house is the classic mm. old consumer one. Pretty big range, but nonetheless, created by a computer. So in that space, it's quite interesting that uh, you had all of these land valuers, property valuers going out there, being acquired by people in the AI space, and then being asked to write down in code into software all the different aspects of their decision, right? What is it? And then that creates a feedback loop, which enables the AI to become wiser, to stand on the shoulders of experts, which is mm -hmm. not to say that still there's lots of things that experts know. So, I mean, nothing beats, so by far the best predictor of the, the best bang for your buck in property is anticipating rezoning. Like there yes. are, there are, uh, and uh, if you've got a mate at the council, I would like. It's you know, a bit like insider I don't, training. Not, isn't not it? telling you, not, don't break the law, please. No one break the law here, but uh, yep. I would not never compete against that guy anyway. So those online valuations really annoy me. And there's one particular bank, for instance, that has an ad on television, and I'm always yelling at the television when I see this ad because you've got this sanctimonious agent and you've got a sanctimonious buyer, and the buyer sort of sidles up to the agent all knowingly and shows them their iPad with this range. I know what this property's worth. I don't need you to tell me, no, 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 sort of thing. And then it zooms into the actual range and it's something ridiculous like mm. 680 to, to 790 or something. And I'm like, how is that helpful? It is not helpful in the slightest. A, it's a very wide range. It's wider than even agents can put on their agency agreements. So, and a lot of these are very, very wide ranges. So, you know, it does not help in the slightest. But for buyers to rely on that information scares the pants off me. Uh, yeah. So they sh any model like that should be able to report on how accurate it is. And if they're giving a wide range, then obviously they're way off. The stuff that's available to the public is not as good as the stuff that banks pay millions of dollars for. And yet brokers, I don't know if you did this, Chris, but brokers give their clients these reports all the time. And I get them in my business when we appraise a property, and I'm careful to say we appraise it because we're not valuers, we go into incredible detail and really, really, really zero in so that we can be very confident in the mm. range that we give our client. And then we get a client that comes along and says, broker gave me this and because it came from a bank, it must be more valuable than what you've just spent eight hours doing. Yeah. There's this value, pardon the pun, attached to that. And I put this question to Chris. Why do brokers do that? Are they trying to add value? For the sake of putting a property address into a valuation tool, you can pretty quickly capture a lot of details on that property and then spit a report to a client and then the client, they might not have the, the the ability to do it. Most brokers, they wouldn't say, just be careful with the valuation number because, you know, there's only so many factors that that valuation can look at and you need to go into a lot more detail than that number because it can either be bang on or pretty close or it could be completely way out. I mean, those valuation tools can work very good if there's lots of sales of lots of similar property mm, yeah. in a similar area. Yeah. For example, if you're trying to sell a two-bedroom unit in Rosebury, there's no shortage of two-bedroom <laughs> units in Rosebury. Yeah, you can work out a formula based on uh, what um, floor it's on. You wouldn't even need AI for that. Yeah, and so those, <laughs> to be honest, if they wanted that report, I probably wouldn't send it to them anyway. I'd say keep looking. But fundamentally, it should be hard to value the property because it actually shows that it's scarce. Yes. There shouldn't be actually quite very few comparables because if, you, if you're comparing likes and likes comparables, there should only be a few that have sold in the last year because you're looking at certain streets within certain suburbs. You, you're ruling out all the main roads, which is going to affect the valuation. I mean, really, I think personally, truly valuing a property, you have to get into the emotional elements of the buyers. It gets 
more and more complex, the more scarce the property is. Mm. And that's probably a good sign. If it's hard to pick the exact value of it, it's, it's because it's quite scarce. So yes, valid points there. Uh, so uh, coming back to the first part about uh, what consumers want, I think they, and why do they pr produce these valuations? I think people want both the personal service and they want the evidence. So that there is a demand from consumers. They want a a human expert that has also uh, looked at the numbers as far as I can understand, uh, but it's very hard to sell the data by itself. A whole other story. To your point, ab absolutely. So the more rare a property is, the harder it is for people to do. So uh, land valuers in farms, for example, mm. uh, they have an easier go. So if your property is unusual, then it could have more upside, but it also might be harder to sell. So that, that's a, a, a problem uh, in general in the high side of the market. So you've got uh, some rich person that's got a $15 million beautiful home, but they've done it just the way they like. They put a, uh, a nightclub in the bottom. Uh, mm -hmm. and, Is this and, one of your friends? Uh, no, <laughs> I've, I've, I've heard of this. Yes. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so that can end up not going so well. So I would imagine there's more variance in such properties. And yes, yeah, so the more... Areas where you've got very standardized housing, so new developments, the Hills District here in Sydney, for example, you're going to be able to accurately price properties a lot more. And then places that are closer to the city, a big problem with the, the algorithms is renovation status. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So the banks look at how much you borrow, right? But that doesn't say anything of how efficient the tradies were. Maybe you're really great at project managing them. Probably if you're an ordinary punter, there's going to be some issues along the way. Did you have some savings that you were use that you had ready? Not everyone has a mortgage, right? Mm. So they don't really know um, how much the place you, has been done up. Are you saying that that the renovation there is certain data about renovation, or the banks have lent money for renovators, and so therefore that data is being fed into these? Yes. Ah, um, oh, right. Okay. Yes. Mm. Uh, the smarter way of doing things these days, I believe, is uh, lidar data. So that is. We can all see the rainbow of colors. Birds yeah. can see ultraviolet. The machines can see lots of other colors as well. Mm. And these other colors give off a footprint of the kinds of materials that a house was made of. And you can, the machine can also look at the length of shadows to work out how tall a place is, the size of it. So as these things get fed to the AI, mm. the AI gets better over time. I mean, there, there is definitely growth in this. So I have a four-year-old and an eight-year-old. Mm. And uh, when my eight-year-old was four years old, she couldn't go to um, ask Google uh, Voice to do stuff for her. Whereas my four-year-old, she can get into Google Images. She doesn't have to go through a magazine. She just says, uh, pretty girls with pink dresses. She Googles that into Google Images. And even though I'm not saying she's a particularly clear speaker, she's just a regular four-year-old, mm. Google has no trouble understanding that. She can whisper it. So... Uh, there is definitely uh, growth in this and a lot of it, you know, some of it is processing power, um, but even more it's about data coming online. And uh, Australia is actually ranked second in the world for uh, public data. Mm. So there's like there's us, there's Taiwan and Britain, and there's a big drop off. So we're very good at producing public data. It's a very good index that runs through all of the different kinds of data. You can validate and see exactly how they came up with that ranking. Personally, I'm just fascinated by looking at things from top down mm. because I think it gives you a really good view of what's happening to a city and what's changing and where yeah. the developments are going on and, and things like that. And one thing which you mentioned about Google, which Google have done recently, is all the eastern suburbs of Sydney and I think summer parts of the lower North Shore is you've now gone 3D image. So you actually, not only can you do a satellite, you yep. can actually see the houses from a 3D point of view, what's double story, mm. what's single story. So you imagine that data for the whole of Sydney, then you plug that into yep. you know, your model. Totally. You can actually see exactly what's been renovated, what hasn't, what's three bedrooms, and the data just keeps on getting better and better and better. You know, you can fly a drone over Sydney with one camera on it, give that to the machine, and then it will make it 3D. Yeah, So wow. it's looking at how the image changes as the drone moves mm. and analogous to what we do with our two eyes and our brain because humans are actually very good at seeing 3D because our ancestors swung through trees. But uh, the machine is getting good at that one as well. So mm. do data scientists come up with the idea that the machine 
can do? Or does the machine throw up something and the data scientist recognises it as a capability and go, oh, my God, I can I can use this and I can apply it there? Is it chicken and all the egg? That's a very good question. So in my consulting, I will listen to uh, what the client is trying to achieve uh, in as broad sense. They might have specific questions as well. But when you're just asking a specific question like, how many widgets did I sell last year in Queensland? Or what's the median house price in Maroochydore? Mm-hmm. That's more of an analyst question. What the, the data scientist should be doing is throwing in as much data as possible and looking at the relationships between that to find what the underlying drivers are or segment customers in certain ways. So it depends on what kinds. I won't get into the technicalities of the kinds of data science, but broadly speaking, I, my view is I, I'm coming up with ideas. My customers coming up with ideas. Experts have ideas. And a lot of what I do is bringing those data sets to the machine for it to then tell me what the underlying things are. Like the HIP scores on microburbs, it's not like so every, there's 55,000 microburbs across Australia. <laughs> this is not video, but I think if you saw me, I'm not the <laughs> hippest dude. Uh, I have no no (laughs) special opinion on it, but Mm. uh, I fed it to the machine and it was able to come up with what hip people have told me is a pretty good. Mm. uh, Because I've looked into some of the things that you have there. I mean, it's like tattoo parlors and um, Mm. coffee, probably coffee roasters, I imagine. (laughs) Yeah, so microbreweries and those types of things. Yeah, so I didn't even go to the level of, hmm, brainstorm, what, what things are hip? I gave it every kind of business. So yeah. it was checking to see if sandblasters made the place hip, right? Mm. No surprise, they didn't. But uh, it's not, yeah. So th- there's in data science, there's a, there's a humility. So you, it's, it's not, yeah, you're giving over, surrendering to this all-seeing thousand-eye monster, you might wow. say. Now, I remember learning statistics at uni and or market research probably more specifically where you start off every research project with a hypothesis, and that was a bit of revelation for me. I thought, what a great idea. And then mm. you just, you've got to prove whether your hypothesis is right or wrong, partly right, partly wrong, whatever. But you've obviously got to be open to it being wrong. Yeah. Otherwise, why bother with the research? Totally. So do you start with a hypothesis? Yeah. So it could be the client's hypothesis. I will have different thoughts. So, for example, um, managed property fund, they wanted to target a particular kind of development. They had a good list of suburbs of and cities that they know very well, and they said, create a model for the rest of it. They had some ideas that really worked and others didn't fit. It, it, they just happened to be not appropriate. Uh, and it's the machine. So me able to communicate that back, it's the, the statistical understanding. Human, computers are just counting machines, right? Mm. They're just very sophisticated counting machines. Even when they're doing things like you can now feed Google a picture of a girl holding a cat and it can describe it how I just did. Mm. It's just coming up with an algorithm. Mm. Uh, have I probably not answered your question at all? Uh, no, that's good. No, that's- no, you have. You have because uh, I think what happens too when property buyers on an individual level, they often have hypotheses whether mm. they know it or not. And, yeah. and you've mentioned it before about yeah, availability about, bias. Thank you. Yeah. And then there's confirmation bias. Yes. So what you already believe to be true, yeah. uh, you're looking for those. Uh, humans are greatly- We see that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All the time. Yeah, I bet you do. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things. We're looking for the good data, but we're not. it's very hard for us to differentiate between what's good and what's not mm. and what should we factor in and what we shouldn't factor in. In terms of actually property, what are some of the data that you think that property buyers are putting too much of a factor on and not putting a bigger factor on other pieces of data. You know, they might be saying a new shopping centre is going in. Sounds great. You know, it's a couple of jobs there, but it's not that important. You know, it's a shopping centre. So what are some of the data that you think that people, are buyers are getting very excited about that isn't that important? Uh, NAPLAN. <laughs> so NAPLAN performance. Uh, mm. I tried that one. So I broke up Australia into school catchments. And I found that the strongest predictor of growth was the proportion of non-English speaking kids. That was that was in the NAPLAN data. So that, okay. As in the more you want more, lots of migrants in order to uh, drive growth. Uh, yeah. The actual performance of the school, uh, not so much. I didn't get to the point of looking at change in NAPLAN. So the idea that a school becomes good, and maybe there are certain cases, certain attachments. But broadly speaking, when you give it to the computer. 
to the AI, it just looks at the whole country. Uh, it didn't find that to be that strong a correlation. Mm-hmm. What's really good is having a lot of amenities that are of interest to mainstream people like the lifestyle score. So within five kilometers, I found places that have those things tended to grow a lot more. Mm-hmm. The things that are attractive more to working class people, mm-hmm. not so good. That, that, that's the last 10 years. So mm-hmm. obviously uh, we're not seeing huge growth in incomes for them. Yeah, A really big one is don't go for space and tranquility. So that, that because <laughs> space and tranquility typically equates to supply. So, so you, have, you have people, they, they live in Sydney and they take a trip up to some beautiful paradise in Queensland. They think, wow, this is amazing. I've fallen in love with this. I'm ahead of the curve. In one or two years' time, lots of people like me who don't spend their weekends looking for an investment property are going to find the same thing. I better get in now before other people do. And so you've have all, got all of this excitement about these uh, tropical lifestyle paradises. What I see is that as you leave job centers, you just end up with massive supply. So as that circle, if you imagine the circle in your, fav- your favorite capital city being the size of a golf ball, you go out 10 kilometers and it becomes a much bigger ball until it's absolutely enormous. The size of that is massive. Even along the coast, so you might be focused on the coast, there's still a hell of a supply of coastline. Uh, the things that worked well are convenient things. So being close to employment, being close to public transport. And that is a story of the success of the migrants to Australia because they prefer those kinds of things. So the presence of any kind of Anglo or Aboriginal or Western European or Northern European was a strong predictor of poor growth. Wow. <laughs> yeah, the supplies that, you know, is obviously such a, an amazing thing that Veronica and I will keep banging on about all the time. Can you explain a little bit more about if that's the case, what does that mean for places where there is a lot of supply? For example, Western Sydney or holiday towns, et cetera. Can you explain why that actually then affects the returns? Metropolises have done okay. So as long as you're inside the metro. So once again, I can only look back 10 years. That's all the data I've got. So Western Sydney is fine. As you go further away from the centre of a city, it gets more various. And there there are obviously throughout, there are the, the biggest thing, if you just give it to the machine, just Find me, turn $1 into $70, right? It will say you have to buy where there is a change in zoning. There are opportunities for vast tracts of change in zoning further out, mm-hmm. but there's opportunities inside as well. I think that the, there is more variation as you go out, but I think in general, metros performed well, but your holiday places, the getting away from it all. I mean, what, what's the driver of income? these places, right? So people have chosen a life other than making money, right? Mm. So what's going to put, what's going to push, push it up. up. Whereas if, Mm. whereas uh, places close to the city that you can walk to a information economy sort of job where salaries have been going up, there is an underlying uh, source of funds for future growth for such properties. So is it correlation with how fast you live your life to how fast prices are going up? If you want to take a sea change, tree change, and you want to slow down, you've got to recognise your property growth is going to slow down proportionately. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I, I think so. So that is, it's yeah. a trade-off that people mm. are welcome to make. But it is interesting that a lot of people justify these decisions. Like you say, they want it, they, oh, I'm ahead of the curve. Other people like me are going to discover this and it's going to take off. And, and this is really an investment decision. Mm. And it goes back to that idea, you know, back in episode one, when we interviewed Simon Russell, and we talked about the justifications effectively that we all make that underpin our decisions and and how we make these decisions, particularly financially and big decisions. That is, you know, we can justify it's got good investment smart, so therefore leaving the rat race and going way up and down the coast or into the hinterland or whatever is a good idea because other people are going to follow me and I'm going to make all my money. Mm. Um, But it is that sort of human rationale, isn't it? So the big end of town that can afford my rates, they get to tell me their assumptions and then I will validate them. So mm-hmm. I will actually run through and say, this thing that you believe, uh, I can't find evidence to support it, or <laughs> I can find evidence to the contrary. 
Whereas uh, your poor mum and dad out there, they're not used to making uh, such large decisions. Mm. They're not accountable to anyone except themselves and perhaps mm. their children. That's uh, yeah, a, a tougher position and there, there is a, a need for I – mean, I've done a lot of work in the startup space and uh, it's not that you necessarily always do exactly what the machine tells you because you're trying to create something new, right? So mm -hmm. th this new development – it might be a new kind of development. It's uh, millennials living together downstairs or something, right? Interesting. Sure, why not? But if you've got assumptions in that, if there, there are things that have led you to believe that, can you check those against mm. reality? Yeah. So if you, for example, if you say that this seaside city is awesome, then ask yourself, well, what are examples of other ones that have done that in the past? Or at, whether it be in Australia, in Australia what were the conditions? So what were the specific things that you think are going to happen? Is it going to be that baby boomers are going to retire there? So do you yeah. want to look at Lake Macquarie and see, see what yeah. happened there? Do you want to look at the volume of development there? What's really the difference? This is the, the job of, a, of, a, of an analyst. There is a bit of a, a story that a lot of investors are thinking at the moment. You know, the Sydney house prices have gone up so much and mm. there's a lot of pressure for people to look at other options. And as a, someone who looks at technology and the changes in technology, et cetera, what are some of the big things in technology that you think that could impact the future of house prices? Things like driverless cars and high-speed trains and, mm. and things like that. I'd love to just, as someone who loves technology, I guess, or, mm. you know, what, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, so driverless cars are a really interesting one. So there's a couple of things there. Uh, you can start marketing being on the road and choosing where you want to go to people who currently don't have access to that. You can do uh, sick people, you can do the, the aging, you can do children, you can pop your kid off to somewhere. Another thing you can do is create your own environment, your own pod, right? So you don't have to be facing the front. Uh, you could uh, sleep your way to work. You could watch an entire movie. Uh, maybe, <laughs> I'm speculating, but maybe uh, it's going to, they're going to make it a really comfortable ride for mm. you. Uh, maybe safety is always going to be a concern. And you'll never feel like what it's like in a bus or even being a passenger in a car. Mm -hmm. So why not spend a whole lot of time in a driverless car? Mm. And then there's all these questions also of, uh, is it going to become a cloud of cars? So mm. is everyone just going to, uh, is everyone going to switch to driving a, going in a, a taxi service? And I'm a bit skeptical there. So this is very important in terms of, uh, what's the supply going to be like? So if you get a cloud of cars, you don't need nearly as many cars. You've got a lot of road and, car and parking space that local government areas will be able to um, rezone and you're going to have massive supply uh, in the city. I personally am skeptical of it because if you look at uh, what we buy today, so you can't, for example, buy a $3,000 new car in Australia like you can in India. Mm -hmm. um, this car will work. It won't be high status, mm -hmm. but it's a sign that people will, Aussies will spend minimum 10 grand on a car because we're buying things other than getting from A to B. We're buying status. We're buying comfort. Mm -hmm. uh, we're buying our own space where we can be with our family. So mm -hmm. I personally am, I don't think, I think it's marketers are going to find a way to sell people on having lots of different cars for different things unless there's a big change you know maybe capitalism's on the way out mm. but uh i mean there's a lot of questions there but i have my doubts about uh self-driving cars becoming a public cloud uh, like uber um so if you play that out you've got cars that are coming from further out uh you you, you it's much quicker to get to where you want to go you don't have to worry about it, that traffic is not yeah. your problem. You can put down the blinds. You can take as long as you want. It's very comfortable. Why not live very far away? Mm -hmm. So maybe contradicting what I just said about the uh, the paradises, mm. maybe there'll be a strong reason to uh, go out further. But having said that, uh, still there's lots of supply. So there's a lot of different places people could go. Um, but there's other trends going on, right? So. Uh, millennials are much more into living with within one another, uh, in amongst one another. They're less likely to leave home. Uh, there's, I mean, a, I don't think you can get away from the notion that people want community and status and simply 
having a place to go to isn't the full picture. Yeah. So are there going to be cores that are going to become intense? So one thing that was predicted with uh, um, in the 90s with computers taking over the workforce was that uh, offices hmm. were going to become more decentralized. Mm -hmm. So you're going to have all of these all over the countryside. <laughs> you're going to have oh, – because it's going to be way cheaper. Why bother having it in town? But it hasn't happened though, has it? The opposite happened. So <laughs> yeah. in London, uh, you've got uh, ever-increasing um, prices. And what, what actually happened was they closed down the back office out. They That gets replaced by software or India. And then in, in the core, you've got this – hyper-marketed, uber-connected, yep. funky, look at our funky atrium thing. But then when you go into the rest of the place, we pack you in like sardines yep. uh, because, and you don't even have a desk anymore mm -hmm. and you don't, we don't even want you to be here um, every day, home. go home. Yeah. But uh, that led to a massive concentration in the city. So um, another, another thing, interesting thing is noise cancelling. So mm. uh Maybe life on a main road. Imagine today we've got noise cancelling that kind of works. Uh, it can take off the bass. Uh, it's really handy when you're listening to a podcast on a plane mm -hmm. uh, when they're not talking over you. Uh, but uh, noise cancelling when you're actually – imagine if the noise cancelling would follow you around your house. Maybe everyone's going to have a bud in their ears anyway. I don't know. Mm -hmm. So maybe that means that um, houses on main roads are going to become a lot more desirable. Maybe they're, they're going to, all going to have self-driving cars on these main roads. <laughs> yeah. So even if your kid runs out, they're all just going to stop really, <laughs> really fast. What I think is so enjoyable about hearing you wax lyrical about this is that, you know, if you think back to the 1990s when, when we're making these predictions and we're making them because we're basing them on our knowledge of what's happened thus far. Mm. And I guess that's what we talk about with data. You're going in what the history. Yeah. But I guess what AI is doing is is not necessarily applying the way we've always thought about it. It's just looking at what's happened, right? Well, so, AI does look at history. So yeah, AI yeah, but, is – so it's not interpreting it's, it's in the way we do. It's conservative, right? So it's saying that in these um, conditions, uh, this is what will happen. But it's it's – uh, futurists. Mm. Mm. So I was on the internet in the 1990s and mm. I saw all of the, the flame wars and all of that, that that became social media of today, right? So mm. you could have looked at um, what this small pop pocket is doing then and see that becoming uh, extrapolated for today. But, yes, these, these big questions like that, uh, even though AI might be massively uh, intertwined in, in doing these things, uh, AI is, uh, is not – the, the, the people that are going to – is not the entities that can confidently predict them. So yeah. property experts and lay people alike are often looking at infrastructure in particular as, as a big precursor or indicator of, you know, future capital growth. Mm. Is it – I mean, we're talking airports, hospitals, roads, fast trains, all that sort of stuff uh, – is there much in the way of history to to suggest that that's correct to rely on those sorts of things? Yes, yeah, so I've done analysis in this area uh, and uh, infrastructure is complex because there are many dates on the timeline. So there's rumours. Um, there's just a belief that the government has to do this because it's obvious. Uh, there, there's dates, there's uncertainty, uh, there's insider knowledge, uh, You've got the date of completion, the date when you actually uh, start digging. Uh, and I have tried to see, look in Sydney to find growth based on infrastructure, and it's quite hard. Mm -hmm. uh, when you give it over to the machine, it comes back to the one big thing, rezoning. Is wow, there rezoning yeah. associated with this? Yes, your land value will go up. If there is not rezoning... I, it's a lot. It's more tenuous. Although I imagine some rezoning can make your land value go down. I yes. mean, it's like you know what. Typically, it goes from what rural, industrial, commercial, uh, low um, density residential, high density residential is basically the general yes. sort of hierarchy of, yep. of values. Right. Increase in density of use. Yeah, but then if you have a low residential property and next door becomes high res, next door may be worth more per square metre, but your property has just gone down. Yes. So a predictor of uh, downward uh, price pressure was the word balcony 
in your neighbors. <laughs> so I looked at property price um, descriptions. That was one of the inputs. Mm-hmm. Uh, Smeg and Mila is awesome. Balcony, really bad. <laughs> it's fascinating. No, isn't and it? I mean, specifically when there were where there was no balcony before, and now there's a balcony. All right, so it actually goes back and looks at previous ad copy. Yes, when you do the data science, there are so many different ways of doing it. There's so many different dimensions. Uh, a lot of it is just uh, working with the presenting the data in lots of different ways to the machine for it to come up with the magic. Yeah, I think your your point there around you know, the many different stages of infrastructure, you know, the rumour all the way to the digging to the finished product, et cetera. And a lot of property investors are going, well, oh, yeah, it's going to take off because mm. in seven years' time that train line's going to be finished and then it's going to be an amazing place to live and then property prices are going to boom. Mm. What they don't realise is that it could be already factored into the price. Yes. Secondly. Yes. Um, it could actually boom two years before the new train comes in because people get overexcited. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they, they come up with this kind of perfect utopia view <laughs> of what this infrastructure is going to do. Sure. And then other factors kick in. You it's know, complicated. Interest so- rates, you know, go up and then that yeah. forces oh, prices, yeah. et cetera. So, one. you know, I guess, it, I guess as an investor, you've got to be very careful, um, you know, how much emphasis you put on infrastructure or, or any data set because yeah. you know, fundamentally if that changes – uh, you know, or it doesn't happen on the timeline you want, you've got to move with the market. You've got to always be constantly changing and varying your thoughts because new data is always coming in. Yeah. So if I was consulting, if if a uh, ordinary mum and dad could afford my rates and I was consulting to them and they said to me, I want to buy a good home, you know, a quarter acre block, but I want it to be near one of these new trains. And I'd be saying, well, what are your assumptions there? Right. Mm. So uh, you're what you've got so this is a family, there's room for a garage. So you've got an assumption that they are going to stop driving to work like they have not have done in the past and mm-hmm. walk and catch the train. So uh, how quick is it into town? Have there been uh, precedents of that before? So we've got great census data in this country. We can actually see uh, before and after a train gets put in, mm. did that lead to that change? That's a behavioral thing. Uh, another assumption is... Uh, the uh, am- amenity that is created is that offset by the new annoyance, the balconies again, right? So if if they're going to also put in lots of high density right near that train station, and now you've lost your privacy, mm-hmm. uh, I would say probably, you know, the growth as- aspect might not be great. But then there's another point, which is what is the potential for you to rezone, and that's where you hit the money. Mm. So if if you if there if there's that, you can get together with some neighbours, then big upside opportunity, but then I'd go back to them and say, well, but what is what are your goals here? So is it just to have good growth or do you want to get lucky with a massive windfall of turning your house into units? What What's the probability of that? What, risk. What, yeah. <laughs> yes. Risk. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I was sitting down with a, with a friend who's a, you know, reasonable size developer um, in Melbourne last week and you know, one of the things that you know, is happening down there at the moment is a lot of people have, you know, got excited about this, you know, middle ring development of townhouses mm. and they've gone and built bought sites that, you know, that they can develop into townhouses and they've gone and priced these and done their feasibility studies on selling on what the price would have sold for last year for a townhouse. But, you know, when you look at the feasibility study this year, townhouse prices have fallen a lot. Mm. And so, you know, even buying something that's able to be rezoned, you've actually then got to buy that land at the actual peak time to to make it all kind of stand up. Does that make sense? Well, as in not the peak time. Yeah, well, that's right. <laughs> the yeah, tough you've time. got to. I've, uh, so I, I, I think Australia, so this is a big issue, say, in America, right? Mm. So developers have a lot more power there. They can, if they want to build something, they'll find a state to do it. And Americans are happy to move. So they, they, Americans are, are love to like compare cities and say, look, I can earn this much and, and my cost of living mm. is only this much. Aussies are much more into staying in the one city and in the bigger cities in the one region of that city. Mm-hmm. Uh, so take my thoughts here. Uh, townhouses. Value out of rezone, changing and rezoning. Yes. Yeah, so, but in, yeah, so in Australia, there is uh, a great hunger. We don't tend to create enough supply. So we try and 
governments try and bake in lots of taxes and there's there's uh, lots of people fighting this stuff, powerful commu- um, local communities. Uh, so there, I th- in general, I would say, uh, yes, that's true, but uh, this is me explaining away what my model has found is that uh, rezoning really was powerful. But that's not to say, so I was looking at uh, change in land value and prices, but what the model doesn't have is all your other costs, right? So mm. if you're competing against a whole lot of other mums and dads who are also doing small-scale mm. uh, rezonings, they're, they're cr- creating a couple of villas or something, uh, what makes you think that you're any better than someone else? What's your edge, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, other people are going to have to go through the same painful DA process. They're going to have to find good uh, professionals, um, you know, the architects and everything, uh, do you have any special skills in that area that makes mm. you think that you're going to perform above market? Because there's a lot of supply of investors out there, right? You don't want to be doing the same thing that everyone else is doing. I think there's so much in this and 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 it does come back to the elephant, you know, us uh, being driven largely by our irrational brain mm. rather than our yeah. rational brain and our rider keeps thinking, okay, well, I'll get a little bit of data and that will satisfy me that I've done my my due diligence and that's enough. And I guess what this conversation is showing is really and truly there's a hell of a lot more that we do need to know. Yeah. Um, and if you're not going to invest in or haven't got the money to invest in this sort of sophisticated uh, data and modelling and prediction uh, that you, for argument's sake, can offer, then we need to actually understand and take the time to properly research and understand the micro market or the mm. micro verb, if you like, of where we're planning to invest. So rather than just saying that a one-dimensional or even a two-dimensional decision-making process like infrastructure and zoning, for argument's sake, well, Mm. zoning, you might hit the jackpot, but infrastructure, you may well be chasing completely the wrong path. Each week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things that property buyers do, dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a lot of stress, mistakes that can be avoided. Now, Luke, have you got a Dumbo of the Week for us? Oh, um... What's well, in my head are those people going out to the uh, far off parts of Queensland and finding uh, paradises. I mean, there's a lot of them. So obviously there's uh, another big bias is fear of missing out. So if you can frame something in a, in a way, if you, want, if, if you are wanting to get someone to buy something and you're saying, look, this is a, a, you know, we're running out of stock, uh, your friends are all doing this, how's your mate going, isn't he making lots of money? That is one of these things that really triggers the, the fear in people uh, and that, that can drive you to decisions when you shouldn't. Another thing, I, 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 maybe a good Dumbo is also uh, just familiarity with that. Uh, people get a, yeah, they, they feel that they, they know an area. So uh, one classic problem is areas are full of people who have all chosen to live in the one place, right? So they, and they talk to other people who also think that place is very good. So at dinner parties, and people are hopeful, uh, people want proof that they made the right decision. So at, at dinner parties and at the barbecue, the general consensus is that current location of barbecue is a great place to buy property. <laughs> and, and they take what? They, they take that, yeah, they take that mm. not just for the current one, but then they will often do that for the next place. They might yeah. not cast it. And that's if I ever get a little plug for microburbs in here. Uh, that is a, microburbs is a great place where you can put in addresses of other places that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And that's what the, the AI has been about as well. Telling you more about what you don't know, you can uh, uh, see that actually for your lifestyle now, there might be more appropriate places than uh, just uh, what you know. Love it. That is gold in itself. And Thank you so much for joining us, Luke. I know that if we had to pay you, we wouldn't be able to afford it. (laughs) In all seriousness, our listeners are getting such an insight here into really what else they need to consider. And it may well overload them, but I think it's good to be overloaded before you get to a point where you've actually got some clarity. I think, you know, people need to respect the magnitude of decision-making around buying property. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure having you oh, come along. Yeah, my pleasure. I'm really happy. It was a great conversation. And Someone who loves data and 
you know, I think there's, a, there's always a challenge when you're looking at data is because there's always more data and there's more data. And, you know, as investors, there's the risk of you're going to over, you know, get analysis paralysis and you're never going to make a decision. But, yep. you know, personally, I think you're better off being more on that side than the, the person who just buys a property on eBay, basically. So, you know, thanks for your time today, Luke. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We want to make you a better elephant rider. And this week's elephant rider training is... Well, we're going to hand this one over to Luke. Yeah, a reminder to people, this is the biggest commercial decision of your life by far. You're going to be massively in debt because of this thing. Take your time, make sure you understand things, check your assumptions, talk to experts, and you should be in a much better place. So Veronica, what have we got to add to our Elephant Memory Bank this week? Well, what better thing to add than the link to Luke's website, Microburbs? I have to say that you get in there, you explore it. It's totally free and the information is very, very interesting. Please join us next episode when we interview Mark Foy. He's a sales agent and principal of Bell Real Estate Agency in Surrey Hills in inner Sydney. We had a really interesting conversation about what makes an A, B or C grade property and what happens to them in terms of prices when the market slows down. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded and edited by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Me again. Don't forget, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please tell your friends and we'd love an iTunes review. Be aware, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances.